Hey, welcome friends and church leaders, pastors. So glad to have you in this book tour moment. My name is Will Mancini, and I am with Kelly Conwisher, who is uh, my colleague, friend, and we're going to have some fun just walking through uh, a book that just came out in December of 2020. We're so grateful that you're on today and look forward to getting to know you a little bit through this interview and sharing what we believe will be some, uh, hopefully some breakthrough uh, ideas and conversations that you can have with your team. Uh, hey, Kelly uh, on our team uh, is, um, she's C CEO of the Future Church Company. And uh, we are so excited about our, our mission is forging together the next chapter of church. And by that, we mean small C church. We're helping one church at a time kind of work through uh, their disciple making uh, mission and vision. Uh, in this post-COVID context, but also as Capital C Church. We make tools and design processes for individuals, for churches, for denominations, uh, so they can design the next chapter of ministry in a very integrated kind of way. And Kelly leads um, that ecosystem of companies that we call the Future Church Company. And uh, she is going to be in the driver's seat as we talk to you about the book, Future Church Today, Again, so glad that you're a part of this uh, exponential event. Kelly? It's nice to meet you guys, and I hope that you'll ask questions. We'd love to dialogue with you, so put those in the chat as we go along, and I'll, I'll raise those up um, as we go along. So yeah, we do want to talk about the book, Future Church, and, and well, it is funny that we now are the Future Church Company, and there's the book, and when you were writing it, and we were dialoguing about it, what are we going to call it? What's the name going to be? And the Future Church came up as an idea, and I really struggled with that name. I pushed back pretty hard a couple of times thinking about not, not wanting to say any one person knows the future or, you know, that it's outside of God's providence, you know, to yeah. the yeah. future. Um, but yeah, t tell everybody where, where you came, why the future church? Like where did that yeah. start for you? Yeah, this, it, it is potentially, it's potentially, I guess you could say it's got, a, it could be potentially arrogant. We was the exact opposite. We were just saying, you know, we've got a uh, tool in here where we look at the 20 year chapters of how we've done church. Uh, the forties and fifties is one chapter. The fifties and sixties, excuse me, sixties, seventies is another chapter. The eighties and nineties is another chapter. We call the last 20 years between 2000 and 2020, the, the missional reorientation. So we've labeled these modes or, ways we've thought about church growth. So actually, Future Church, Kelly, as you know, is really saying, we don't know what we're going to really label 2020 to 2040. I just know it's going to be a chapter, a meaningful, distinct way we have thought about church. So we were just trying to tease that out a little bit. I think, I believe we were feeling prior to COVID kind of a, you know, tectonic plate shift or a boundary condition and in, in particularly in North America, I know we've got folks all over the globe listening in. So got a little bit of a North American bias here. So as we were looking at the boundary condition that was going to happen in North America, we wanted to name that new chapter, if you will. So it's kind of like the next chapter, future church, what's it going to look like there? Uh, but I do, we, we um, and, and you'll, you'll remember this, we were, we did, there's a tool that we call the upper room, lower room tool that we'll talk about here in a minute. But uh, part, one of the titles that I was excited about was like Church of the Upper Room. And so there's Upper Room, 
But at the end of the day, uh, because of where we were culturally, people liked the future church when we did studies on there. So anyhow, future yeah. church is where it landed. Yeah, and I think that is important. I think all of us as, as church leaders were experimenting and talking about these tectonic plates. We knew they were moving. And then all of a sudden, I mean, no one, we didn't know this, right? Like when you finally named the book, published the book, and then boom, the COVID pandemic disruption happens and everyone all of a sudden is now asking the question, you know, what, what do we do now uh, given this situation and all of the, it wasn't that it caused the change, but the disruption accelerated us leaning into it in a way that I think none of us expected. Um, and one of the reasons why is because that lower room had an earthquake uh, when the pandemic closed down gatherings. So I think it'd be great if you could share with everyone that lower room, upper room tool and how that um, yeah. affects how we're thinking about future church. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I, I'm gonna I'm gonna go rather than using PowerPoint, I'd rather draw Kelly. So we'll do use flip chart here. The uh, it is interesting. The uh, the book was sent to the publisher on March eighth, which was exactly of 2020, which is exact, which was exactly seven days before most churches in North America closed their doors because of the pandemic. So the timing was a little eerie, if you will, on on that. And that's a great reference to yeah getting getting an earthquake in the lower room. The, uh, the upper room, lower room is really about two motivations, two, two, two places that, that church attenders can be motivated by at church would be one way to, to think of it. And so we draw a little stick figure house here. Uh, we're going to you know, put a staircase off here to the right. We're going to suggest that when people come into the church for the first time, they, they tend to get an identity around the lower room. So you, it's like you cannot not come in on the lower room. In the lower room, we talk about the four areas that can define your motivation. I, I like to think of it, why do you call church home? I like the question, what emotionally connects you to the church? And so we talk about place, personality, programs, and people. And to quickly walk through these, this is pretty intuitive. Uh, this is just the brick and mortar. Maybe it's close proximity. It's you might have a beautiful traditional sanctuary, uh, like I know where 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 you and Rich lead there in Atlanta, or you might have just a very cool, you know, kind of strip center redo or some kind of you know urban. Uh, there's all kinds of fun, you know, maybe state of the art, you know, big box in the suburbs somewhere. All these great places, and sometimes people just connect most to the place. Uh, don't mention relocation, right? Uh, personality, we know in North America, most people particularly connect to the, the primary teacher or communicator on a Sunday morning. So that person leaves, their connection to the church is severed, you know, it's done. Uh, programs, there might be, it's, it's kind of not the church's big picture, but there's one thing there that you love. It's a children's thing or, uh, you know, some particular Tuesday morning women's Bible study, name it. I mean, all the different options that are out there. And then people Really, it's just that affection of knowing a handful of people who know your first name, you feel accepted, and uh, all these things are good things. In fact, we would call this uh, the lower room. We would say it's all about provisions. So we could put in parentheses here, provision. 
And so we want churches to have, you know, a, a uh, you know, meaningful lower room because people are going to come in and immediately have opinions ar- around these things. The, the, the challenge, as you know, Kelly, with, with, with the, the, um, the kind of the big problem statement in, in, uh, in future church is this idea that the functional Great Commission, you know, has become going to all the world and make more worship attenders, baptizing them in the name of small groups and teaching them to volunteer a few hours a month. And what happens is, is it can be all too easy to define the entire mission around attracting and connecting people who love your place, who love your personality, who love your programs, and who, who like each other, but they may not have what we call an upper room identity. They may not actually be emotionally connected to what Jesus is doing and why Jesus came and what Jesus has for each individual, every man, woman, and child. So we call this the, the vision. I'm going to put vision in all caps where, um, you know, there, there's a place where people can walk the staircase and actually connect emotionally uh, to, to the biggest ideas of God. And we use, of course, the vision frame as a master tool. I say, of course, if anyone's familiar with my prior writings and our, 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 my prior ministry through Oxana or the work we do now through the Future Church Company, we basically say there are five irreducible questions of clarity that can connect you to, to the purpose as your unique disciple-making vision. And all, every one of those words is important. The idea that we're contrasting purpose from place, personality, programs, people. The idea that once we name your vision frame, it is unique. There's no two churches that are photocopies of each other, that uh, there's a unique disciple-making vision calling for each person in each community of people. So that's the big tool we, we lead in. And obviously, Kelly, there's a lot that we do with this tool. Um, and I want to just turn on one or two layers once we establish this tool. Let me just turn on a human layer and let me turn on a, a reflection on the ministry of Jesus. The, the human layer is that, um, you know, if you were to ask an eight-year-old boy, what do you want most in life? Uh, you know, Maybe, you know, Easter is yesterday. You know, I've I, I got three out of the house and little my, my caboose baby is four years old. So, of course, we had a little Easter, some, some, some stuff we gave at Easter. And, and, and the eyes light up over this concrete stuff. You're, you're trying to talk about the meaning of Easter, but you're giving toys and you're living in that tension. Uh, Easter egg basket, candy, whatever. We ask an eight-year, average eight-year-old boy, what do you want most in life? Every answer is tangible. It's a scooter, electric scooter. It's an Xbox. It's whatever. You ask the parents what they want most for their eight-year-old boy, and every answer is intangible. In other words, just the maturity level reflects kind of an upper room, lower room kind of dynamic. You know, parents want their child to feel accepted. They want a true sense of feeling loved. They want their child to know God and have you know self-confidence, et cetera. So tangible, intangible. We'd say turning on the layer of just looking at Jesus's ministry through this lens, we would say this is the feeding of the 5,000 where the Apostle John actually writes, you know, many of the people came for the benefit of the food. They got a free happy meal and they got some great teaching. And there was probably 15 to 20,000 men, women and children at Jesus's biggest seminar or conference. And yet we look in Acts 1, how many people are in the literal upper room 
that are the community. I mean, this is who Jesus poured his life in. These are the ones who, who understood who Jesus was, what he was there for. We would say there's about 120. So to have thousands down here, but to have 120 up here is, is also, I think, just a great reflection of how people move and the opportunity for people to come for the benefits that Jesus provides with the provision and to really for their hearts to get wrapped around the vision that, 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 so this is why we could have called the book, the church of the upper room, because all about how do we get more and more people up the staircase to, to emotionally connect and invest where, where, where God's at work, upper room stuff. So that's the tool that we start and open the book with. Yeah, thanks for walking us through. Though yesterday was Easter Sunday, um, and so many of us were excited about the opportunity, many for the first time, to go back and worship together with other people, whether that was outside or in a socially distanced inside or 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 things. But we saw all over the place people posting on my first time to be able to worship together. I'm so excited. It's Easter. It was huge. I mean, it was just an amazing, I, yeah. I, we, we had a, the ability to gather and, and um, people were crying at, at the ability to gather again. Um, and so we know that we know that the place matters and the people that we want to see and hug, they matter. Um, yeah. So yeah, let, let's just take a little bit about that lower room, because I think sometimes as we've talked about this and worked with leaders, they get the impression that we might communicate that the lower room isn't important or that we're criticizing it in some way. Um, so talk a little bit more about the value of, of that yeah. connection and, and what happens in that lower room. Yeah, it's really, it, yeah, it's interesting. It, it's the it's, it's very important to say that we want you to have a good lower room. I believe in the organized church. We just want the organized church to be uh, in harness for the disciple making purposes of Jesus. So the problem is when you have a lower room only, yeah. we're going to name the problem. Well. The logical error is if we make one part, the whole. So we, we've done a great detriment to the mission of Jesus, to the vision of God. For, for, for mankind, if we take what's a part of a church and we make it the whole thing. So the problem of lower room only, or um, as, our, as our friend Dave Rose likes to say, it's not that the lower room isn't accurate, it's just not adequate by itself, right? So the, the you know, and, and let's come back and say, yes, God made the Garden of Eden. He put Adam and Eve in a place. Uh, We're going to be someday in a new heaven, a new earth, a new Jerusalem. And Place matters. God, you know, creates places. That's a beautiful part of being human being. Um, you know, there's no such thing as a vision without people. We want these relationships to be more than what you can get in a local bar. So again, it's it's not that we, we want great community, but we want community on mission. Uh, so that's that's a little bit um, of how we want these to find their right place. Um, so when, when, when there's an upper room in place, these have a beautiful, appropriate role. When there's no upper room, these try to do too much and they end up kind of just, just doing what we call program church. Right. Yeah. Cause we still have the, um, value of life on life ministry. People still come to a relationship with Jesus, usually through a relationship with another person. Um, and so the opportunity to connect is still so valuable. The question is, what are we connecting people to and with? 
and that's that that connection. So we have to talk about building a staircase, right? Well, for for what the process is, or what is the what do we as a church, uh, you know, name as the the way to move people from the lower room to the upper room? So if you're just joining us uh, here, this is um, Will Mancini, author of Future Church, and we're talking about the book Future Church. And the, the question it asked, the primary problem that we're trying to, to solve here um, in this post-COVID reality of what is the um, way to connect people from uh, what we're calling the, the, the lower room motivation of connecting with the people, the place, the personality, um, the programs of a church to their their relationship with Jesus, their disciple making, um, their own walk, and also their ability to make other disciples. So that's what we're talking about, if you're just joining us. Um, and I was just asking, Will, about the the staircase. So you drew a staircase. Uh, tell us a little bit more about the the book and, and how it relates to the staircase there. Yeah, yeah. If you're just joining us, we're talking about the primary problem that Future Church is designed to solve as a book and a toolbox is the functional Great Commission, which has become, unfortunately, for too many churches, go into all the world and make more worship attenders, baptizing them in the name of small groups and teaching them to volunteer a few hours a month. And we're saying that's not the mission. That's kind of the, we got away from true north if we're aiming at that. That's not the mission that Jesus gave his life for. And that one way to look at it is every person who calls your church home is coming from one of two motivators, either they, they come to your church because of the place, personality, programs, people, some mix or ratio of one of these that they really like and they're connected there. Uh, the staircase represents when their emotional connection shifts to actually get emotionally you know, excited and, and, and think about the story of God for the church and the opportunity to know what we do as a church, why we do it, how we do it, when we're successful, and to have a sense of what is that next big dream, gospel dream for our local church in our time and our place. So the five irreducible questions around this tool we call the vision frame. Um, and, and Kelly, what we did in this book really is we, I did a little bit something different. Every book I've done before usually just kind of, it's a, it's a toolbox book. It's a how-to, here we go. This book is different because we unpack what we call the seven laws of real church growth. If you haven't caught this on the cover, there are these little images and every image there's seven dots here and seven laws. So we're saying there are seven principles, seven maxims, seven laws that you've, you've, you've really as a church leader have to believe in or understand or appreciate and begin to design your ministry around to enable more men, women, and children to, to, um, kind of access this, this upper room dynamic. So, um, you know, really the, the seven laws and the whole rest of the book are about how to help get this. And then we have another drawing that we'll get to here in, in a little while that helps church leaders design ministry for, for kind of the upper room mindset. I think it, it's helpful to just make, make sure we illustrate uh, this. For example, uh, there's a church um, I've worked with in Charlotte called Good Shepherd. And uh, they have a vision that's called their um, uh, beautiful uh, marriage vision. And they have a dream that when they launched the dream, you know, it was like a seven year dream that they would significantly impact the divorce rate in seven zip codes around their church. 
And it's really a marriage mentoring movement that happens outside the walls of the church. Now, what's interesting is they have for years used, you know, leading with, with a disciple-making mission, leading with disciple-making values. They have a disciple-making strategy. They have disciple-making scorecards. They're a disciple-making center, if you will, but they, they have this dream. And there's just something beautiful when you call people to be a part. And, and you know, again, it's, it's, it's a broad enough vision, whether you're married or not, they're calling people to have this impact in a very specific community, a very specific kind of impact I love how they lead it out, Kelly. They said, look, you can have a beautiful wedding in a day, but a beautiful marriage takes a lifetime. Mm -hmm. And here's God's blueprint for that. And here's people that can help walk alongside of you. And when you get people excited about God's design for marriage and you have a role to play and we're going to impact the divorce rate in 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 a community, I mean, that is a big enough story. You can really give your life to it in a big way. And most churches don't give people, they give people a biblical story. They don't give people an experiential real story where you're playing a part above just, you know, volunteering in the parking lot or volunteering in kids ministry or maybe singing up and lead worship on the stage. They don't give them a bigger story. So uh, that just that's just a quick, concrete example, Kelly, of of like, what is that bigger story? Uh, In some ways, I'd be like, this is the on ramp to the biblical story. Don't just don't just give me, you know. If you, if you preach this big epic narrative of redemption and then I go back to business as usual and just churn through the church's mechanics, it's no different than binging some story on Netflix and it doesn't, you know, it doesn't change my life. It was just entertainment. It was just, it was just some interesting storytelling. So we got to on-ramp people to God's epic story. And, and I believe this upper room is one, you know, one of the ways is really our only way to really do that. What is, what is, the story that we're living into as God's people locally. And you talked about how Future Church does unpack these seven laws. It is a little bit of a, diff- of a pivot for you from the tool-making books that you've that we have all used and enjoy. Um, and part of that had to do with looking back over 20 years of working with churches of all sizes, all denominations, all over the country, wow. and thinking about if I really reflect on what I've seen and what I've learned over the years, you know, here is a a way to articulate that in terms of these seven laws. And the first law that we're talking about right now, really in the staircase connection that you're leaning into, really does talk about where we put most of our energy. Most of us put our time and our energy um, and our focus on that worship experience on Sunday morning. Like that is a huge focal point. Um, So I'd love for you to unpack a little bit about um, connecting Sunday morning uh, to the lower room, upper room conversation you're having and that first law of real church growth. Yeah, I think, I think what, what's a, a helpful segue to that law one is just a quick reflection and reminder, Kelly, that if we take that simple house, and if you only have, you know, if there's no upper room and a, and a lower room only, we call, we call this, you know, I was going to put a PR here, program, PROG, program church. If you have uh, an upper room only, and think about it for a minute. There are people who've said, Hey, I'm done with church. I'm done with budgets and buildings and steeples and, you know, staff and blah, 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 blah. And so they just punch out a program church and we, you know, we call that house church. It's like, 
Yeah. Sometimes it's just people like, hey, we're going to meet in the house. I've got a dozen people. I'm leading people to Jesus. We don't need all the organization. So we, we call this organization without disciple making. We call this disciple making without organization. And what we're calling future church is this combination of both, both houses. So this is our, our ideal. And as you mentioned, law one, we are saying, you know, we, we want, we want the four P's, but we want, we want a vision frame. And that as soon as you'd name both these things, uh, and I'll go back to our, to our thing. as soon as you want both these things, by, by the way, between 2020 and 2040, there are really only three kinds of churches. And I think this is a broad typology that can be actually be very helpful that the churches that do program church, their value to believers, their value to their community is going to rapidly diminish. And then COVID exposed that a little bit, a lot, a lot. Uh, house church, I think is going to be viable. And I celebrate that it's not where, you and I have chosen to give in you know, our best energies um, as consultants and ministry practitioners. Uh, this future church, you know, the both and is, is this is organization without disciple making. This is disciple making without organization. This is what we call organized disciple making. So coming back to law one, we'd say a culture of, um, we'd say real church growth. And Kelly, as you know, we use, we, it's, it's a little bit um, potentially polarizing, but we want to be helpful and we want to awaken new thoughts. So we talk about real church growth, fake church growth. Are you making disciples? Or are you faking disciples? And we're suggesting that lower room only is actually, it's more accurate to say we're faking disciples than, than making them. So law one of real church growth is that, um, Real church growth starts with a culture of mission or starts with mission, not worship. Now, this is so important because it's this unique tension that we've created. Do I believe in worship? Absolutely. Do I believe in worship services? Absolutely. Um, but I also believe that wor genuine worship, true worship, whether it's an individual before God, Romans 12, 1, or it's a collection of saints meeting to worship Jesus on a Sunday morning through the word and through saint songs, et cetera, liturgy, no worship happens without mission happening first. It's a logical sequencing to say, in the mind of the community of people, do we start with worship or do we start with mission? So we would just say there's a mission in God. This is part of the missional reorientation. Uh, there's no such thing uh, as, a, as a, a church with a mission, or it's more accurate to say, it's not, not that the church has a mission, but it's that the mission of God has a church. There is a mission in God. And Kelly, you and I worship every person listening to us right now worships because a God was on mission. There's a rescue story that precedes the worship moment. And that's what we want to acknowledge. Uh, a helpful way to understand Law 1 or the way that I see Law 1 play out, Kelly, is there's a batch of church planters every year for the last decade. I've worked with the Houston Church Plant Planning Network. And I'd say in the last three to five years, it's interesting that that church planters that are starting churches in the Houston metropolitan area, if I were to look at their strategy presentations over the last five years, almost it's almost a 50-50 split. Some of these church planters are starting by planting a worship service, hoping to get disciples. 
But every year, there's a, it's so clear when you see a strategy where that church planter is going to be in a community a year or two, maybe three, where they're just focused on disciple making, evangelism, investing in people, people development. They're not trying to start a public worship service that will attract people. They're, they're starting to create a disciple making, you know, kind of traction and activity. And they're hoping someday to launch a public worship service. And it's that shift that we're talking about right now. In, in the core of your church, are you starting with the idea that mission must happen? Oh, and we will do worship as mission continues to happen. Or are we relying on the last 80 years of how we thought about church in, in North America to say, yep, put up a brick and mortar box and open it up for worship and have people come and hopefully we'll get them to opt into the mission of Jesus at some point. So that's law one. Real church growth starts with mission, not worship. It's good. Yes. And if you're just joining us, um, this is a conversation on the book Future Church by Will Mancini with Will Mancini. Uh, we've been talking a little bit about the uh, shift that we've experienced from COVID and naming that in this tool, um, the two motivators, the lower room and the upper room, um, and talking about the uh, the role that worship plays and, and all of these four P's in the lower room toward our disciple making vision of the church. Um, and I, and I want to shift now to what happened in COVID and uh, the, the rise in kind of asynchronous, you know, people worshiping and learning and studying and praying together in different times, different places, a lot digital um, that happened. And I know a lot, we've had this question a lot. Well, with, pastor saying, you know, what do I do now that people are going online and they can get any sermon from any preacher or any study from any teacher or, you know, anything from anywhere? Uh, what value do I bring now? Like, where is my place in all of this? And it, and it really brings that for me, the fourth law um, of, of a future church or four laws of real church growth that I thought it would be really helpful for us to talk about right now as people are wondering like, where, where do I as a leader help my congregation in this new, this new landscape? Yeah. Yeah. Well, we'll get, yeah. I'd love to break into laws. Let me just address that broad, broadly here. And it, it is very, it's very challenging if you have a, a lower room mindset only, it's not only challenging, it's almost you know, it's depressing when I think, okay, if the value proposition of the church is coming to hear me teach, and that's the ultimate value proposition, you know, it's, it's just totally dislocating, right? Totally depressing to think, okay, my people, before they get out of bed and put their foot on the floor, they can get access to a hundred better communicators that, you know, than me. And Kelly, you kind of know my fun, even personal vision journey. I wanted to be a great, you know, preacher when I was in seminary and the Lord's like, no, that's not why I put you on earth. You're going to be, you're going to be pretty good at facilitating, but I didn't put you on earth to preach. And so I've got to find, you know, my, my own way and my own calling there. So I feel very susceptible as I empathize with pastors because, you know, because almost every pastor I meet is a better preacher than, than, than I can be. So what we want to do is help them rest. And I want you as a pastor and church leader to rest in the idea that the church is not ultimately designed to be a teaching center. Yes, teaching happens. The, the church is designed to be a training center. And when you have an upper room dynamic, you can rest because 
COVID didn't do this. Steve Jobs did this. The internet did this. When, when internet meets, you know, iPad, which was way before, 10 years before COVID, teaching had become a commodity. 10 years before COVID, I go and listen to 100 preachers, better than my local pastor. And COVID just made everyone completely know that 110% with, with great clarity. Um, training will never be a commodity. Having a dream in the context, which is, which is what you're lo- referring to, Kelly, on Law 4, real church growth is always local, never imported, gives us that opportunity to be a people, a true people, uh, in a true place. And that's, you know, God is always working in, in, a, in a true place. Incarnation, right? Happen. Everything's incarnational here in the upper room. So, um, yeah, it's, it's, there is a night and day difference when a pastor can lead with a one of a kind vision frame takes a lot of pressure off, you know, the quality of you. We want everyone to push and be great at what they do. We want, I want every pastor to challenge themselves to be better at communicating next Sunday. They were this Sunday. Just don't want them to be debilitated by the competitive spirit that can happen and is happening all around us. Uh, and, and, and worrying, worrying about that for sure. So I do think, Kelly, this, another reflection since you brought up the technology piece, uh, in August is that we were pinning the last pages before going literally to the press, trying to wait each week to see what would happen with COVID. Uh, as you know, the Holy Spirit put in my mind, I think it's just like most of what we've done to adapt or quote, innovate if you want to use that word, since COVID at, at that time was, was all defined by the internet. And I asked the question, what would happen if the internet broke tomorrow? How would you feel as a pastor? And 99% of all the adaptation and innovation would be rendered useless if the internet broke tomorrow. And yet nothing that we talk about or write about in future church would change if the church went underground, if the internet broke, if, if the pandemic, you know, raise its head again, and we had to be shut down for another year. Uh, and that's, that's the, the beauty of the long-term playbook, and that's the rest and peace and goodness we want, we want um, pastors to find in leading from the upper room with the, with the seven laws of real church growth. Yeah, that's really good because the uh, opportunity to really create that life on, like you're saying, training is life on life. And that is where the opportunity is to lead in. And digital can support that. Digital can support those types of disciple-making training opportunities, but it's not in and of itself a strategy. Um, so, so we start to have a couple questions come in, Will. So I'd love okay. to float these up. And please, for the rest of you, if you have a question about um, you, your leadership, what you're experiencing in this, in this post-COVID reality, please send it in. So if many church planners, so this is back to your church planning conversation, if many church planners are starting without a large worship service, what does this do to the church plant funding model? Is the planner a bivocational planner? Um, how do you, how did they talk about the resource generation for church planting if they don't start with a worship service? Yeah, that's a great, that's a great question. Obviously, um, I, I believe this would, let me, let me answer the question by going back prior to COVID. Uh, I believe the, the first big signpost that the church in North America was losing its value proposition to the believer, I would say in 2015 was the most noticeable trending that your most committed church people 
are attending church less and less. And so really the, 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 the question is, if I'm over relying on the lower room, um, w- what does that mean to the business model? And I would say the business model is significantly declining if you over rely on the, on the lower room. Um, in the upper room, as people genuinely engage the mission of Jesus, obviously the Lord owes a thousand of, you know, cattle on a thousand hills and, and, and the Lord has, has everything. So I think there's, it, it, it dramatically meddles with our funding models. It doesn't, it doesn't meddle with God's provision. Just want to make sure we state that difference up front. Um, it, I would say it's a, I would say today it's a, it's a very limited paradigm, I almost say false paradigm to think that you can rely on the way a worship service could generate revenue in 1985, 1995, 2005. It just won't today. So in some ways, this is the gift to say, um, if I'm making disciples, I invite disciples into, um, you know, the, the generosity of living in the way of Jesus. And let me just get make some real, real practical. If I'm starting a church, I'm going to look for the 10, 20, 30 core disciples on my team. And I'm going to unapologetically invite them to invest into the upper room mission and vision. Um, if I'm starting by trying to get 120, 150 people in a public worship service, just so I can get a funding amount, I'd say it kind of turns on its head, you know, the, the, you know, the whole, the whole thing we're, we're over relying on that, that lower room again. Uh, it's just what we've known. And so this is really about a paradigm, paradigmatic change where we can't rely on what we've known, but I believe the resources are going to be there. Still have the practical timing of that. So yeah. Do you raise money to give yourself a disciple making ramp up before disciples can fund the project? Perhaps. And I think in North America, particularly, there's still enough of Christendom, if you will, there's enough, you know, latent awareness that, and, and, and frankly, wealth that you could probably start here and be fine. Um, I, I do think um, because of uh, the uh, an organization that Kelly and I lead together uh, called Unique, Live by Design. I think there are a lot of pastors doing big box, lower room church, and there's not, they're not actually in the, in the best fit of their life. So I do think there's a tremendous opportunity in the future for the co-vocational, bivocational model. But we've got to flip the script on, on what bivo means. It's not, it's not that, you know, I haven't gotten serious enough to be a full-time, quote, pastor yet. It's that, oh, I, I actually bring more value to a community by living productively in my calling. And at the same time, I don't need to put what was a, a kind of a pressure on a, a financial model pressure on a lower room because, because I'm able to earn an income as I do kind of upper room uh, dynamics. So it's a lot to say, we do have to think through the funding model. We do have to be creative. It is going to push our paradigm, but the most important thing I believe is where God guides, he provides, and we're not, we're not, we're not going to lack resources if we're imaginative uh, and we're leading with upper room. You just won't. We see it time and time again. Uh, just get, we have to rethink our model. Good. No model is perfect. Some are good. Some work. The ones from the 80s and 90s don't work the same way financially. Mm-hmm. 
And back to the law of context, there's no one answer to this either. Like depending on where right. you were planning a church and among whom the funding model could look very different. Um, so that'll be highly contextual um, as well. Okay, so if you're just joining uh, one us. One, oh, I was going to say one practical thing there, Kelly, before you rebound. It's, it's really about how big your core team is and how much core team development you're doing. So, you know, when you time public worship is one thing, how many upper room disciples you have when you go live in, in upper room. I'm thinking of a recent church planner, his name's Jeremiah in Houston. And he said, I, I want to make sure I have a hundred upper room disciples before I launch my first public worship service. Now that that's a lofty goal. And that takes a lot of hard work. And he, he was able you know, in like a 24 month period to develop that, that vision. Some of them came from other churches and he already had some of them where he cultivated and raised up. So that's the bigger question is, is, and you got to look at that financially. Great, great, uh, great question. Kelly. Yeah. Now I just want to last uh, welcome to those who just joined us. We're talking about the book Future Church with author Will Mancini, uh, Future Church. Uh, and the, we've been visiting this tool, Upper Room, Lower Room, the two motivators, and also um, the book being a little different than Will's previous books in that it, it's really a look back on 20 years of working with churches and church leaders and saying, what have I learned? What have I seen? Um, which has resulted in that in the seven laws of real church growth. But here in our last a little bit. I do want to pivot to the to the other tool that is introduced in the book that we um, are asked to talk about all the time, uh, which is looking at um, the the intersection of what we do together as the church or the or the corporate calling of the church or the common calling and mission of the church, which we've been talking about. Um, and then that's that special calling. You just talked about unique, the individual call that God has on each one of our lives um, and how those two things come together in a productive collision of disciple making. So, um, Will, why don't you take it away and kind of show people that that tool and why yeah. it matters right now more than ever. I, I'm going to jump into that. I was, I was thinking, Kelly, I want to say one last thing to our audience today with the upper room, lower room. And I realize I, I kind of hint to this in the book, but I don't say it. And I, I'm thinking of it particularly because of the exponential partnership and audience right now. Um, there are a lot of ideas you get exposed to in the exponential platform and doing book tours and um, uh, just this, you know, and again, phenomenal tools. And I want to share with the audience that this tool, which opens the book, Future Church, the upper room, lower room tool, the two motivators. I want to share that this tool is special for you as a leader for a particular reason. And that is, let's say you had a toolbox, let's say it has a hundred tools in it. And every tool has something to do with multiplication, with movemental, with disciple making, getting to level five to use exponentials, construct and language. What I want to suggest to you is it's so easy to start with a tool that doesn't reveal or create a change in the heart of the people who already come to your church. So just, I want you to think for a minute about your core 10, your core 20. And I want to re remind the listeners, Kelly, that you cannot lose and this tool is a gateway to all our tools because when you name for your top, some of you have staff around you, others, you know, the lay leaders, your elders, your board, your deacons, whoever that is in your church, like your greatest challenges 
that they are emotionally connected in a lower room, way more than you realize. And when you add tools, what they do is they lower room eyes, if you will, those tools. And so every other conversation you have as a leader changes when you draw this and you say, guys, I'm not going to lead from a lower room. I'm only going to lead from a root crystal clarity on God's unique disciple making vision for us. And we're going to hammer out these, these, you know, mission, value, strategy, measures, what we call vision proper. Like we're going to have that in our system to put this and keep this in a superior place. And what I see all the time, Kelly, is staff, church leaders, lay leaders, you know, they, when they see this, they insist on getting up here with you together. Like there's this energy that's created and the language of lower upper room is so sticky that it's named all the time. And it just, because I just want to suggest like, I would be depressed right now if you told me, Kelly, Will, for the next six months, everywhere you consult, you're not allowed to use this tool. I'd be like, I don't know how to create that heart change, that inner hunger to, to be after God. And so I'm just blown away at how simple this is. And I wanted to say that before we share any other tools, because I want to give that gift of kind of put, create a logical priority in this. Um, Kelly, tell a story. Um, I, I remember working uh, over a decade ago, it was the largest building project in North America at the time. It was a $140 million building that was being built. And I came five years later, I said, what was the most valuable part of our process? And the executive pastor said, well, it was that upper room, lower room. Because every day for the last five years, while we were putting so much money and resourcing into this, there wasn't a time where a staff or lay leader every single day didn't mention upper room, lower room. And so it keeps you kind of, keeps you, you know, the main thing, the main thing, if you will. All right. That was a big segue, Kelly. Started to take well so long there. <laughs> big segue, big segue. Keep your tools in sequence. So this, uh, this tool that Kelly is referring to, we reveal in the, in the back third of the Future Church book. And we actually have a forthcoming book right now that will be our toolbox book for this at the Future Church Company. So I'm really excited about that. And this tool uh, is, we call it Funnel Fusion, which sounds a little goofy, but let's unpack it a little bit. What we want to do is visualize the Functional Great Commission as an assimilation funnel, large to small. And we call this the assimilation funnel. I'll put some dotted lines here. And I'm going to get out of my chair for a sec. What we, what we call in the assimilation funnel, we put the words attend, connect, serve in here. So put that here, attend, connect, serve, or volunteer. And this represents that functional great commission that we've been talking about. Um, go into all the world, make more worship attenders, baptizing them in the name of small groups and teaching them to volunteer a few hours a month. And what we also acknowledge on here is that you have, if you have 100% of your people in a worship service, you know, the numbers on average are you get, the chemical engineer comes out, Kelly, right? You get a yield loss here, 50% yield loss. I only get half of them connected. You only get another half connected. So we call this the funnel of diminishing returns. One of my favorite parts 
of this, when you look at all the books that have been written in the modern church era, look at all the books that have written the last 40 years on a church model. Think Saddleback, purpose-driven church. Think Simple Church. Um, think um, Church of the Highlands as a training you know, tool and a model of ministry that you can borrow or adopt around four-step funnel. Simple Church is a three-step funnel. Purpose-driven church is a five-step funnel. And we we go into a lot of, and there's some bonus material. By the way, bo- little little flag out for the bonus material. There's 30,000 words we had to cut, so we created bonus material. So, hey, those of you who want the background information and some of Corey Hartman's genius, you can get that. Um, this 10 connect serve, obviously these numbers are unique for each church, but you have about a 50% yield loss here. So we call this a funnel of diminishing returns. This is the assimilation funnel or the engagement funnel, how to get people involved in the organization. And what we want to suggest is if you, you, know, you only have this, this is lower room only. If you only have this, this is program church. So what we're saying is you can overlay really another funnel here. And we call this the multiplication funnel because this is the really the definitive pattern of the life of Jesus. And, you know, we, in, in evangelicalism, we talk about, you know, the, the words of Jesus, obviously. We talk about the work of Jesus, justification, just finished Easter, right? Uh, sanctification, glorification, all, ha- all empowered by the work of, of Jesus on the cross, substitutionary atonement. But we don't talk about the, the ways of Jesus very much, meaning what if there's all kinds of authoritative and practical, powerful ways that Jesus should, when we're in the gospels, it actually is a playbook. I, Kelly, I, I learned at Dallas Theological Seminary, they only gave me two categories, prescriptive or descriptive, yeah. which means the Bible, if it's prescriptive, the Bible is telling you exactly how you have to live and what to do, and you don't second guess it. Or we had this, we had this caveat of it's descriptive, like, okay, it's descriptive, which means for me at the time, my takeaway was, well, I can read what God did, but there's no authoritative pattern or prescriptive patterning in there for me to learn from. So the definitive pattern is saying, wow, um, I'm in a different historical time and context, but the way in which Jesus is advancing his mission in and through me in and through relationships, there's some patterns, some playbook. And so we're pulling this out. We symbolize the, the multiplication funnel with one uh, person who is an authorized agent of Jesus. They're empowered. They see the world as Jesus sees the world. Um, we have the 12, which is the number of, that Jesus initially deeply invested into. Uh, there's a 72. This is a Luke 8 one, Luke 9 one, Luke 10 one. We're seeing that seed form movement of multiplication. And then we come all the way out here and we talk about 120 being in the upper room. So Jesus gave his life over a three-year public ministry to have about 120 people, I believe, in his, quote, church. So everything we want to design in ministry strategy, everything in the upper room, we want to look through through the lens of how do we do blue funnel and red funnel together and not just do uh, blue funnel only dynamic. So this master tool we call funnel fusion. So I'll write that up here. And Kelly, I've never, um, while the upper room, lower room is the most important 
starting point with a church leader. In the last two years of my life, three years of my life, I've never had more fruitful whiteboard discussions than when I have this up on the board and a church team, a leadership team, a staff, board, elders, deacon, whatever, like they're really wrestling through how does our ministry model not just get people involved in a funnel of diminishing returns, but how, as we do worship services, small groups, and volunteering, how are we activating uh, true life-on-life disciple-making where people live, work, and play? Now, Kelly, you referenced the unique thing, and I, I cannot not share this. What we believe is that you really, in, in 2021 in our cultural context, if you want to get great traction on here, I'm going to write some things down here. We, we talk about not just the, the organization, you know, just like the Great Commission, but your personal calling or your personal mission. So I think when people have a sense that they know why God put them on earth, it begins to activate this multiplication funnel. The multiplication funnel is about what happens where people live, work, and play in the scattered church. So we talk about vocational discipleship. As you know, Kelly, that's not our word. That's a Barna word from their great research saying that 18 to 29-year-olds, what they want most from their church is they, they want their church to help them put their gifts in the game nine to five. And what we say here is what if Jesus' disciple-making model looks less like starting a small group in the name of your church and looks more like how you invest in relationships as a banker, plumber, policeman, teacher, counselor? Wow, what, what a crazy idea, right? And then we talk about this as this one person lives in the world. Symbolically, Jesus had 120 as church. Symbolically, we know that if you add up, if, if you're a church leader listening, you handpick any leader, any member of your church. If you add up the relationships that person has in their neighborhood, in their workplace, in their extended family, through their hobbies and interests, where they live, work, and play, you see they're going to probably have about 120 people in their sphere of influence. So we talk about what is that ultimate contribution? Um, Kelly, really, this is all about not making worship services, small groups, and volunteering the entire enchilada at your church, but saying, what if Jesus wants all of that to be dynamically put into play for helping people understand their personal calling, seeing discipleship happen, not just in church, but outside the walls of the church and seeing every person live into their Esther for such a time as this moment out there. So this is really a fun tool to do design work with. And that design work starts with improving, increasing, stoking the imagination uh, of, of, uh, of church leaders. Yeah, and one of the sticky kind of, of um, examples of this or metaphors is your, your first name in Jesus and your last name in Jesus. So sometimes we could talk about the mission of the church, so your unique mission of the church you lead as the kind of last name, meaning it's the family that you're inviting people to belong to. So, you know, like we all have this last name and there's lots of us in the family, but we're all part of this family together. Um, maybe some of you gathered at Easter together um, because you're all family, um, but that, 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 that is your, almost your last name, but you also have a first name. And that first name distinguishes you from your family in a way that speaks to who you are as an individual. Um, and what we would say is, you know, your unique calling. And so that first name could be 
personal, your personal calling, why God puts you on the earth um, right now. And so like, for example, my, uh, the mission of, of the church where I belong and, and worship and, and uh, live out my calling is the mission there is joining Christ daily in the restoration of all things. And so I'm always thinking, okay, well, God put me on the earth to convert hidden potential into deployed passion. So how, how am I using my calling to do this conversion? And you like that, right? As a chemical engineer, I'm converting potential, right? Into, That's right. into passion. So if I'm converting yeah. all this energy into in, in deploying it, how am I doing that as a part of this larger body in, in this restoration work that I'm a part of at my church? Um, so that first name, last name thing can be really helpful because it, it kind of helps see the power of, of you got to have both, right? You got to have both. You have to see how you as an individual is participating in the body, but also the body seeing the value of the individual and how its mission really can't be fulfilled until the personal calling of each person is both named and known and released and empowered. Um, so I, I think that first name, last name is a sticky, is a sticky little uh, image to think about. I just want to, and, and I think by way of illustration, just to, to brag on Kelly with our church, church leader audience. I mean, Kelly uh, is, a, is not just leading the unique organization, but as a master trainer and, you know, as a practitioner in context. So when Kelly walks into a church, when I come visit your church, I love it because Leaders everywhere talk and name their personal calling, just like you did. And, and so I, wanna, I want the, uh, the, the listeners to imagine literally scores of people and leaders in the church that can name their red funnel, like what they're good at, what, how, you know, I, I'm, think, I'm thinking of, of one, one guy, I'll, I'll change his name to protect anonymity, I call him Steve, but Steve is a leader in your church, Kelly. I ran into him the other day. And one of his dreams, he has a mortgage company. And one of his dreams is to help 100 people who work for him earn $100,000 more income. And of course, that's tied to, you know, spiritual development and just kind of a holistic disciple making. But I love how he just has a dream of helping them uh, make an impact financially in their lives and the world. And so, you know, that's the beauty of the red funnel, blue funnel working together. Joining Christ daily in the restoration of all things is what everyone's doing together. Together, and then as people scatter, as we join Christ daily in the restoration of all things, everyone's personal calling is released where, where they where they live, work, and play. Love, love that last name, first name, and thank you for the way that you model that so well in your church. And. So we are I'm getting ready to close here. Uh, there, if you are interested in a copy of the book, the link to get your copy of Future Church is in the chat. And we would love to hear from you at the Future Church Company. Um, if you have questions, if you or you can still ask a question here, but if you have questions or just want to learn more, uh, please reach out to either one of us, Kelly at futurechurch.co. You know, there's not an M on the end, futurechurch.co, or Will at Future Church. Co, and we'd love to um, answer your questions. Just kind of hear what what are your um, learnings and and how you are leading the church in this uh, this season right now. So that is that's the book there. The links in the chat. And so thank you for joining us. Um, we loved uh, an opportunity to share a little bit with you today um, about future church, living into this next chapter of church, um, and, and what that's going to look like for all of us. So thanks so much for, for being with us today.